This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So bankruptcy, five ways declaring bankruptcy does and doesn't affect you. And I think this is a really important segment because we're addressing the myths and the just the uh, the beliefs that are out there in the universe that people think about bankruptcy the fears the uncertainty all that right it's so misunderstood i mean that's what i've learned in just doing this show with you is yeah like i misunderstood a ton of it and and i also looked at my own personal biases around it and there's a lot so it's a misunderstood process as a result lots of folks want to avoid filing bankruptcy or even considering other legal debt help options but Blair, licensed insolvency trustee, helps folks with debt every day. And it's so great you've put a, put together this list of some really common areas of concern that you get asked about on a regular basis. Yeah. So, you know, most people that come through our door, they've done a little bit of research online, maybe a lot, but there's so much conflicting information that's out there. And, you know, sometimes it's written by people that have a certain agenda, you know, like a creditor that wants to get paid back and never wants to see anybody file for bankruptcy. Um, so it's good to kind of cut through the facts and, and the myths and, and tell you what what's exactly true here. So I think we grouped it into a couple ways. We talked first how bankruptcy does affect you. Uh, and, you know, let's start off at, at the first thing, you know, uh, well, bankruptcy gives you the breathing room that you need. Um, Bankruptcy requires your creditors to stop contacting you. And to a person, people that come into my door, um, they are scared of collection calls and for good reason. Um, You know, creditors can call you seven days a week, you know, from 7 a.m. till about 9 p.m. most of those days. Um, You know, they shouldn't threaten. They shouldn't say the things that are untrue. Um, You know, all those things are prohibited. But what my clients tell me is quite often they threaten, they say things that are untrue, and they engage in psychological warfare, essentially, to, you know, to try to make it so painful for you to get these calls, you're going to do whatever you can, whatever it takes to make a payment on those debts. Absolutely. I mean, I can speak from just experience of getting threatening phone calls from organizations that don't exist, that are completely fake. And I have to take a second and think, oh, right, this is a fake call and hang up. Mm -hmm. And but but that's not where your brain goes yeah. right off the bat, right? You get scared. It's the opposite of what we're conditioned to do. And, and collection agents know this, so they'll yeah. speak in a very authoritative, declarative tone saying, you know, this is the way it is. And, you know, if you hang up this phone, I'll be at your door tomorrow type of thing, which, you know, could never happen that way. Exactly. Uh, so if you file for bankruptcy right away, that has to stop. So as soon as you sign the documents, um, the trustee contacts your creditors and says, well, as of now, we the trustee steps in the middle like a referee. So there's no more direct contact between creditors and the individual. The individual gets the breathing room that they need to to restructure. But it's even bigger than that in terms of stopping contact um, because, you know, what sends people running through the doors to us is if your assets or your wages are being seized. So, you know, typically the government will do this more quickly, but any creditor could if they take you to court. Um, They can go to your employer. They can take up to 30% of your wages before you see a dime, uh, which you can imagine if you're struggling to live 
of how tough that could be. Absolutely. Um, and they could potentially register on title to your house if you have one or try to seize vehicles or different assets. So if you file for bankruptcy, not only do creditors have to stop contacting you, but they have to stop any asset seizures or wage seizures that are in place. And that includes the government. There's nobody that has an authority that trumps what the Bankruptcy Act requires. Cool. Uh, credit rating impact. And I think this is really important to go over uh, mm-hmm. because I know, again, the myth is you're doomed. Oh, yeah. The myth is it's a life sentence. Yeah. And again, depending on who you're getting advice from, some people will say you'll never be able to buy a house if, if you file for bankruptcy. Oh, or a car or yeah. uh, anything, right? Yeah. And the reality is so far from that, it, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, First off, if you file for bankruptcy or you do a consumer proposal, anytime you compromise your debts, anytime you don't pay back exactly what's owed to the penny plus interest, your credit rating takes a hit. Okay. Um, if it's the first time you've ever been through a bankruptcy, when you finish the bankruptcy, and usually that's after nine months, um, when you finish the bankruptcy for six years after, if someone pulls a credit bureau, they're going to see that a bankruptcy has been filed. If it's a consumer proposal, typically it's two to three years after completion. If someone pulls a credit bureau, they're going to see a consumer proposal has been filed. Now, first off, six or seven or two or three years is a lot less than the rest of your life. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't go on forever. One, and that's really important. Mm-hmm. But two. But two is even that is a long time. And if you do the right things, um, you can rebuild your credit as soon as two to three years after even a bankruptcy, let alone a proposal. And, you know, the right things, we talk about them in depth at the counseling sessions. We tell you about secured credit cards, about RRSP loans, about all the important things you need to do to rebuild your credit. And if you follow those steps, no reason why you can't qualify for a mortgage in as little as two to three years after bankruptcy. So when I sit down with my clients and we sketch out, you know, what are you doing now and where's your money going? And gee, saving that down payment seems just impossible, doesn't it? Because all the money's going to interest. If you look after a bankruptcy when they owe nobody anything, suddenly there's some disposable income that can work towards saving a down payment. And for this market in the lower mainland, two to three years of savings is a minimum to to get any sort of a down payment. So usually it's not the credit rating that's going to hold you back from getting a property. It's just going to be the time required to save a down payment. But you're way better off even after bankruptcy doing that because before bankruptcy, any money you save, your creditors are going to have the right to come and get from you. Yeah. And the credit rating part, after you've declared uh, or you've done a consumer proposal, you're, you're establishing a credit rating in a sense because you are being responsible, you're paying, you're paying whatever it is that's been deemed that you need to pay, and that shows up. Yep. I love that. Oh yeah. You finished the proposal, you've shown, you've honored an obligation, you know, usually it's two to four years or so, you've successfully come through it, it's focused on saving the down payment, and your credit will rebuild quicker than you think. Very good. Very good. Uh, debts are written off. Yeah. Sometimes people forget about this um, yeah. because if all you think about is that the negative in a bankruptcy, well, why yeah. would anyone ever do it? Well, the answer is no matter what you owe, and it can be as little as $1,000, nobody goes bankrupt on $1,000. It can be literally millions of dollars. Whatever it is, at the end of the day, when you're finished the bankruptcy, the debts are gone. You're back to zero. You're back to having a sense of possibility and hope and being able to save rather than knowing that every dollar that comes into your pocket is already spoken for six times over. Now, there can be exceptions to this, and they're very common sense exceptions. You know, if you had a court-imposed fine or, um, you know, if you had alimony or child support, obviously you can't go into bankruptcy and, and remove the obligation to support your family. No. You wouldn't want to. No. But just about every other debt that's not aris- arising from fraud or crime or support when you finish bankruptcy, that's gone. You start again fresh. And the again, the idea of someone who's been carrying around, maybe it's sixty or $80,000 of debt for years, 
when I ask them to imagine their life without this debt around their neck, you know, they start to smile, they start, their eyes start to, to broaden, they start to think of all the things they could do if this debt wasn't attached to them. And that's what you can do after a bankruptcy. Which includes having a better night's sleep, right? It's yeah. done. And I think that's a, I think that's an, that's a, a sense of peace. Oh my gosh, that's worth its weight in gold. Right? Oh yeah. The, the amount of, of reviews that we get of really nice cards of people saying, you know, after I met with you guys, even sometimes it's just the first meeting of just knowing that there is hope. There's someone that cares enough to explain everything to them and take them through the process. Yeah. People say I had the best night's sleep in years. Yeah. Excellent. So how uh, how bankruptcy does not affect you? Yeah, and this this is helpful because sometimes people think, you know, bankruptcy is just this all-encompassing thing that really turns your life upside down. And, you know, in reality, it's we get in between you and the people that you owe money to, and we basically work out a process that you can get out of that debt over time. Um, how it does not impact you, first off, is getting a job. So, you know, some people think if you've been into bankruptcy, no one's going to hire you or things like that. It's not necessarily true. No, definitely. And it doesn't prevent you from getting just about any job that's out there. You know, obviously if you're administering trust funds as a lawyer, you might have a bit of a problem there, but, (laughs) but, you know, literally that's about the only um, implication that I've seen here. Uh, You can't be fired because you declare bankruptcy. You can't be disciplined because you do a consumer proposal or different things like that. The law does protect you that, you know, you really can't have these unintended consequences from an employment point of view. Excellent. Uh, making your spouse pay. Yeah, sometimes people are quite worried. Well, you know, if I go into bankruptcy and I owe these credit cards, aren't they just going to come and pursue my husband or wife for the amounts owing? Right. And there could be a risk of that, you know, if you've got joint accounts. If both of you are on the credit cards, if you've each got cards, your na- your both of your names are on the invoices, and that usually makes sense for the couple to come in and meet with the trustee at the same time, and we'll figure all that out. Um, but just because you're married doesn't mean you owe the other spouse's debt. So one person going into bankruptcy or doing a consumer proposal can literally have zero impact on the other person's debts and on the other person's credit rating. And that's pre-marriage too, to, uh, something to think about too, if you're in that situation, yep. right? Leaving the country. <laughs> that's funny. Oh yeah. Because, you know, uh, uh, well, I don't know. I think these days, uh, my personal experience is I'm always concerned about, well, what's somebody going to, they're going to look at, they're going to enter my name and mm-hmm. into a data bank and, oh gosh, what's going to come up? like nothing, but mm-hmm. you know, that's a concern for people. Yeah. We, we all often think, you know, there is some central database that maybe Canada Revenue Agency and the banks and everybody else feeds all their information into, and that that spits out some picture of an individual that they know everything about us at every moment. And that if we file for bankruptcy or a proposal, suddenly, you know, when we try to leave the country, there's going to be a, a big alert. We're going to be seized at the border and so on and so forth. So um, not a small number of my clients come in the door really concerned about that. You know, is my passport going to be impacted? Is my citizenship going to be impacted? Well, the answer is no. Um, so zero impact on your passport. You're still a Canadian citizen, regardless of, of what happens with your debts. Um, zero Im- impact on you being able to travel. Um, I'm not aware of any database that's cross-referenced at the border that says that whether you owe money or not. Um, the only implication that I'm aware of is if you have child support debts that are s- significant, and this is outside of a bankruptcy completely, then family maintenance can put some restrictions on your passport, but that's about it. And that's nothing to do with a bankruptcy. Right. And, and, not, and, and probably the percentage of people who'd be affected by that are pre- is pretty small. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, one other potential impact, and this is pretty minor too, but I do get asked these questions quite a bit, um, is if you're trying to sponsor um, someone to come to Canada. Um, you know, I had someone in my office last night um, who came from Pakistan, you know, 20 years ago, and he's trying to bring the rest of his family over. Um, he's been driving a cab for many years. He's been very successful financially for the most part, but he's had to send a lot of his money back to support his family. And now, you know, he thinks that they're ready to come over. Um, the challenge is if he files for bankruptcy, he can't sponsor them. So you can't sponsor someone to immigrate to Canada because you're putting up potentially some financial guarantees at that point. And while you're in bankruptcy, you can't really give financial guarantees of that type. So I was discussing with him, if he filed for bankruptcy for the nine month period of the bankruptcy, he could not sponsor his family, but you know, after that he should be fine again. Or if he wanted to, you know, just remove any uncertainty whatsoever, if he were to do a consumer proposal, there's not the same impact. So oh, that's interesting. Okay. So not the same, um, stipulation as a bankruptcy ha- yeah. has. Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Yeah, I think, you know, one final thing, thing, Elaine, is just on the idea of what you do get out of bankruptcy is you get a lot of questions answered that, you know, really, I don't know where you get the answers otherwise, because other than a licensed insolvency trustee, there are very few people that have to put all this together in a digestible way. And that happens in their counseling sessions. So anybody that files for bankruptcy or does a consumer proposal, they've got to come for two financial counseling sessions. They're private sessions, not a group session. They're one-on-one in our offices. We spend the time, we talk about credit rebuilding, about budgeting, about life after the bankruptcy. We often get told that along with having to keep a budget, that's the most valuable part of the whole process. That's really good to remember, um, especially the one-on-one thing, because then you're not dealing with, you know, the embarrassment and all that oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, it's private. Up. If any of this information is resonating with you and you want to investigate and take it further and go see somebody, go see Blair Manton at Sands & Associates. Easy to do. You can get that financial fresh start. Call their number. It's a 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. And get the free consultation or to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. On the line with us is Bethany Cam. She's a qualified insolvency counselor with Sands & Associates. She's got over five years of experience working in the personal debt help industry. She uh, provides counseling to clients in all the off- in the Abbotsford and Langley offices uh, for the one-on-one financial counseling sessions, which is what Sands and Associates offers. Bethany feels it's important to provide help without judgment, and says, "quote Through financial counseling, clients begin to feel empowered with knowledge of money management, and most importantly." Hopeful. And Bethany, I can tell you that Blair and I talk about that hope all the time in this show because it feels so hopeless sometimes when somebody's walking yeah. in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the counseling sessions. Yeah. So Bethany, thanks for joining us today. Um, why don't you start off don't just worry. telling us why do we have counseling sessions? You know, are, are these a mandatory part of bankruptcies and proposals? Yes. So they are mandatory. Um, they're required by the superintendent to attend two counseling sessions in a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal process. And the ad- objective of these counseling sessions is to help with overall financial rehabilitation. 
It's hopefully giving people the skills they need to ideally make a bankruptcy or a proposal a one-time occurrence in their lives. Okay, so you use the word, you know, financial rehab, so to, so to speak. So it's, you know, giving them skills and, um, and techniques and tools to, to try to make sure, you know, again, it's one time they, they come through the door. Uh, what's the structure of, of the sessions? You know, I often have my clients be really concerned, you know, is this going to be a group situation where, um, you know, I'll tell my story and everyone else will tell their story and we'll, com- you know, compare stories or is, is it different than that? Right. Um, so these are one-on-one private sessions. Um, it's not a group setting. We do find it is beneficial to bring someone um, just that shares your finances with you just so you can be on the same page. Um, often like, like a husband or wife kind of, you think? Exactly, yes. Yep, common law, anything that, like that. Now, Bethany, um, what kind of, I mean, this has got to be a bit tough for people to walk in the door and have to sit down. How does it go for these folks? Well, it's a non-judgmental environment here. Um, we let everyone kind of talk, and I hope they go out of the sessions feeling very hopeful about their future and, like I say, their financial goals coming true. Now, I bet I bet they do feel a lot more hopeful when they walk out the door. Yes. And, and Bethany, what, what topics do you cover in the, the first counseling sessions? So in the first counseling session, it is um, the subject matter is specified in the law for each of the counseling sessions. So the first counseling session focuses on um, how to rebuild your credit, when to get back into credit, what cards are available. Um, so there's prepaid, secured, and unsecured. So we go over those in a little bit of detail so people understand. Um, we also go over spending plans, like needs versus wants. And then at the end, I really like to go over people's financial goals and dreams because I feel like people tend to forget about their dreams because when you're in financial hardship, they just don't seem in reach. So I really like to come back to those goals. Yeah, and what you said there, Bethany, kind of kind of hit me when you were talking about the needs versus wants. You know, I've had some people say, you know, that's really everything. You know, it's it's always figuring out, you know, what can I afford to do? What do, what I love to do? You know, how do those discussions usually go when you're talking about needs versus wants with clients? Well, we kind of write them down and we kind of go over some questions and we kind of go back to the cash. Um, if you don't have the cash, you don't usually buy it. Um, but mm, okay. Yep, we kind of go over some questions of what they might think is a need or is a want. And are there some surprises? You know, someone really thought this is a need, and as you, you start to drive down, you figure out, well, actually, it was more of a want than a need, and that, that's a bit of an insight, right? Yep, and also when they kind of realize, they say, hey, you know what, we might actually not need it right now. We can wait, right. even for Christmas or Mother's Day or something. So makes it a little bit more special as well. Okay, and then you talked about, you know, financial goals and, and dreams. And, you know, Bethany, you and I do different things at different points with, with clients. So, you know, when people come in to me, their, their big goal and their dream is just to, you know, make the pain stop, you know, to stop the collection calls, right. you know, to give them a sense that, you know, they're not a horrible person, they can actually move forward in, in their life. And, you know, sometimes they have some, you know, dim idea that eventually they'd love to be able to buy, you know, a house or a condo or something. I'm curious, yeah. you know, how are the types of goals that, that you sit down and develop with clients, you know, how do they align or not align with the those types of things that people usually say when they start the process? Yep. So some are, you know, they want to get into a down payment again. They want their home. Um, some are, they want to have Christmas paid off so it's not all put on credit cards. So that's a goal. They they like having Christmas and they want to be able to have the Christmas presents to the grandchildren and, you know, their spouses and all of that. You know, it, it really ranges 
on on everyone, but there's lots of different goals. Some of trips because they haven't taken a trip in six or seven years. Um, so it really everyone's different. <laughs> Bethany, is there sort of um, a, not a set list, but some general questions that uh, the people come in to your counseling session with and and really want to focus on and get answered? Yeah, so there there are a few that definitely um, stand out to me. So uh, some of the common questions is, does it take seven years for them to rebuild their credit? Mm, um, does it? And, nope. <laughs> um, so it is six years after discharge is how long it stays on your Equifax and TransUnion report. Um, however, you can start rebuilding from the get-go right when you sign the papers, you can start rebuilding your credit. And those are the things we go over in the counseling session. So you don't have to um, wait, you know, a few years. You know, as you said, you can really start to take positive steps right away. Right. Okay. And that's very encouraging for people to hear because um, they're under the assumption that, you know, they can't rebuild if it's still on their Equifax and TransUnion report. Yeah, I really love that part um, of the thinking around uh, consumer proposal for folks that they're mm-hmm. automatically rebuilding their credit as soon as as soon as they start because there's a documentation that they've taken action and they're taking very significant important steps to uh, fix this debt issue and I just love I just love that I mean that to me is part of the hope that you guys bring for folks. And then another question that they ask is, do their employers or their friends find out about the process? Um, and nope, uh, it is a confidential process. Mm-hmm. The only time a friend or employer would find out is if their wages are being garnished, um, so their employer would know. Um, and if their friend owed them money and they had them on the creditor list, um, then they would be notified. But this is confidential, so not everyone knows about it. Well, that's great info, Bethany. And, you know, we're, we're down to about the last minute and a half here or so. I'm, I'm curious, uh, you've been doing counseling for a number of years here, and it's always interesting to me, what do people find really surprising? So I wonder if for a first counseling session, you know, what do you find that your clients are, are really surprised by that you when you relay it to them? Yeah, um, I think they are very surprised at how quickly they can get back into credit and start rebuilding, um, you know, their credit. Um, I find they're surprised at how common of a process this is. The insolvency, insolvency statistics in Canada for 2017 were 122,198 people in Canada wow. to do a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal. So then they feel like they're not alone. Um, and then the last one is I think they're very surprised that their goals are achievable. We break it down into how much they have to save, how long they have to save the money, and we break it in down into how much they have to save each day. And I feel like people are very surprised and very hopeful when they come out of the sessions. Bethany, I think you must do some wonderful work with these folks because uh, you just ha- you're so empathetic and you understand the process and you sort of understand uh, who they are when they're walking in the door and, and have experienced so many positive things. And Bethany is just one of the several uh, staff uh, at uh, Sands and Associates. Remember uh, the website, nice and easy to remember, it's sands-trustee.com. You can give them a call. It's a 1-800 number. If you're interested, if any of this information is resonating with you and you'd like some more, their number is 1-800-661-3030 for that first free consultation, as well as to find an office near you. Thanks, Bethany. 
Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the things that we talk about on the show, go to the website. It's a terrific one, sands-trustee.com. Lots of frequently asked questions uh, that may answer some of your concerns. Or you can call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. Financial problems often build up over time. But what about the debt that hits unexpectedly? And you also know from all the clients that you've seen over the years that that's the, sometimes the thing that takes them out. Oh, yeah. It's not a, a chronic overspending. It's getting wham, hit with something that they had no way of being able to prepare for. And this segment is about the high stake debts you didn't see coming. And I think it's a really important segment. I'm so glad we're doing it. Yeah, no, exactly. And you hit the, the nail on the head there that a lot of people, they're doing just fine. They're getting along just fine. Then something happens, right? And the big challenge here is we all should have this big emergency fund built up of, you know, six to nine months of fixed expenses that if something happens, you know, you lose your job, you get sick, maybe you split up, you've got some nest egg to carry you along. The challenge is just about everybody that I see, and even my personal life, most people I know, uh, we're just getting by. <laughs> you know, exactly. you're, you're perched on the knife's edge, and as long as nothing happens, you're fine, but something that tips you a little bit, and suddenly you fall off, and things can be, can be very difficult. Yeah, because that's, that's a whole other thing to be able to have that six to nine months put away. Yeah. Yeah, very challenging. All right, so what are some of the ones that we don't see coming that are really big and important that we... <laughs> Yeah, have the, to deal with. there's one blinking light in my mind right yeah. now. It's three letters and they're very, very topical letters at almost all points of the year here is Canada Revenue Agency, CRA. Yeah. So CRA debt that you didn't see coming can rock your world in a very significant way. Um, you know, sometimes people just anticipate, well, I know I'm going to owe a little bit of money every April and they, and they plan for that a little bit. Um, but in some cases, you know, maybe your accountant made a mistake and maybe that accountant had made mistakes for several years and tried to deduct things that just weren't allowed. And suddenly CRA has reassessed you. Yes. Um, you know, maybe you took on an extra job last year and you didn't realize that that bumped you into a different tax bracket. You thought you were getting deducted enough, uh, but CRA is going to hit you with a big bill and you don't know what to do with that. And, and it's a bill that has to be paid right now. Yeah. Like they owe you money. <laughs> they can take as long as they want to pay you and there's no interest gets to be charged. Yeah. You owe them money. Interest gets charged. It's hefty. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> never ending oh, until yeah. it gets paid. Well, and there could be penalties on top of that. Absolutely. You know, there could be just basic penalties. There could even be gross negligence penalties. If this was something, that if your accountant had made the mistake, you're still accountable to it. And depending on how egregious it was, you could owe multiples of the actual tax that was saved there. Yeah. Um, so with CRA, yeah, if you owe them money, if you don't pay it prior to April 30th, immediately there's a 5% hit of yeah. interest and then it's 1% per month. So not as bad as a credit card, um, but definitely still not you know not your prime bank rate at all. It it still can be a significant charge here. Yeah, and no, and there's no negotiation attached with it. Unless you're seeing a trustee to do a consumer proposal, right. no, you're not going to be able to make a deal with with CRA. Yeah. 
Um, you know, we sometimes find that, you know, people that have been newly self-employed, they get a big surprise after a couple of years too, um, because, you know, we can argue whether it should be this way or not, but there's no requirements for someone to be self-employed. You can literally open shop tomorrow, hang out a shingle, um, and no one really sits you down and explains to you, well, you might be building up a liability for GST if you're charging GST. You might be building up a liability for income tax, you know, if you're going to generate more than the very bare minimum of income in, in the country here. So people can go for a period of years, um, you know, just saying, well, I'm not going to do any filings or whatever. I'm just going to focus on my business and people do. And then I see them in my office when CRA has just decided, well, if you haven't filed your taxes for say three to five years, we're just going to look through your bank records and we're going to assume that every dollar that went through your bank account was your gross income. Yeah. We're going to assume you had no business expenses and we're going to give you a tax bill based on that. So that's called an arbitrary assessment. Um, CRA can do it quite often. And the answer to it is file the darn returns and then they'll adjust the numbers. But it's definitely, it's done to get your attention. And if you don't deal with it, CRA will take the next step, which can be seizing assets, seizing wages, you know, really giving you a tough time. Wow. And and you're the one that's going to help me uh, deal with that too, right? Like at a, yep. a consumer proposal level uh, to deal with the CRA, that's 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 what you guys do. That's what we do every day of the week. Yeah, yeah. We, we can generally make deals with CRA if someone's legitimately unable to pay the debt in full. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, ICBC debt. Yeah. So ICBC debt, you know, a little less prevalent than than CRA, but, you know, there could be a number of reasons, you know, and as long as it's not a criminal basis, you know, drunk driving and someone got killed or something like that. Um, but, you know, if you were driving, you know, well suspended or if you were driving as a new driver, you didn't have someone in the car with you, if you weren't in full compliance with L regulations, you know, if there's something that caused you to be slightly out of compliance with ICBC and something happens, um, ICBC still pays out for the accident to whoever the other party is, but then you have to pay ICBC back. So I've seen people in my office, you know, 17, 18 years old, and they've got a $40,000 bill to ICBC because a small accident happened and, you know, they just weren't in full compliance with their L or with their N requirements. Okay, so this isn't a fine being leveled by ICBC. This is your responsibility to them because you didn't... Yeah. Uh, play by the rules and what you signed up. For. Yeah, essentially there's been some breach of the terms of your insurance. And if that happens, ICBC is well within their rights and they will do so, say, well, you are no longer covered and whatever costs were accrued to that type of a of an accident, um, they try to recover that personally from the person. And because it's you know theoretically a government debt, not a MasterCard or Visa or something, there's no statute of limitations. You can't wait this out. Um, eventually ICBC will stop you being able to be licensed, stop you being able to insure a vehicle um, and then potentially take more steps to even start to seize wages or or, garnish, or seize assets as well. It's always surprising uh, when people say, oh my gosh, I went to get a new my new license and uh, I had to pay all my traffic fines or <laughs> yeah. all my traffic tickets. And they're just so shocked that these organizations, these uh, agencies talk to one another. Yeah, there, there is a catch-all there <laughs> at the end of the day. So yeah, it's pay now or pay later. And paying now is always cheaper, especially always, with tickets. Yeah. Always cheaper, always cheaper. Um, what kind of clawbacks Mm-hmm. could I get or could one experience? Yeah. So the clawback refers to, you know, if you're receiving government benefits and, you know, it could be OAS, it could be EI, I see quite a bit, or even sure. disability benefits, um, but you're receiving these benefits based on a certain set of facts. And especially if it's EI, for example, the set of facts is that you are not working. Right. Okay. So if you're receiving EI um, and then you get a job, but you neglect to tell EI that you got a job and for a period of time you receive EI and your employment income, uh, when the government eventually connects the dots, and they will, uh, when they eventually connect the dots, they're going to come to you and say, well, we need to claw back or take back uh, those benefits that were paid to you when you weren't entitled to them. Um, so 
if that money has already been spent, and if you've been, you know, living hand to mouth anyway, and the money's not there to repay, well, then you can have a problem because again, it's a government debt. They've got more power than anybody to collect. And it could be a sizable amount, you know, especially if you started to work early on during EI benefits and, you know, just didn't tell the government. And, you know, not to say that that's a completely dishonest thing to do. Sometimes there's reasons for it. You know, a mother trying to support four children who's able to work a little bit, but needs the EI benefits to make ends meet. I wouldn't say she's done the wrong thing, but there will be some implications there that the government's going to come looking for that money back. Yeah, that, absolutely. No, that's a really good point. It, it's often, it's not the the young the young guy who's who's collecting EI and then, you know, working here and working there and, and still ripping off the government. Th- those aren't the cases we're really talking about. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the people whose backs are up against the wall and, and they need the money and they need that money and they need the money, a uh, little bit of money that they can make as well. Yeah. That's a good point. What else? Well, life event deaths are, are a big thing. So, you know, this is a case, you know, something happens in your life and there's financial implications. And the biggest one that I see is a relationship breakdown. Sure. So, you know, two big components that can really contribute to a financial problem. Um, you know, one is the idea of shared debt. So if you've incurred a bunch of debt together, you've got to deal with it. Um, if you've been married or cohabitating for more than two years, uh, if one person has incurred a bunch of the debt, they might have to, you know, try to hold the other partner accountable for it. So you know, MasterCard or Visa can't collect from the other partner who doesn't the money. But if you've been in a relationship with somebody and that other person has put everything on their credit cards and it's been to the benefit of both of you, the person who's got the debt might realistically have a claim against the other person saying, hey, you've got to keep me whole here. This is this debt was incurred for both of us. Right. So there can be some implications of joint debt. Um, but I think even bigger than that, especially if you're amicable on the splitting of debt, it's just the cost of reestablishing yourself. You know, living as a single person is definitely more expensive. Yes. Um, you know, suddenly you've got to buy new furniture, you've got to get a new apartment, new damage deposit maybe a vehicle. There's just a lot of extra costs that you hadn't planned on as you were a couple that you will start to have to pay if you're single now. Yeah. And it's very, yeah, all of those things are very expensive depending on where you're living as well. Mm -hmm. Falling through the cracks debt. Yes. So our last category of stuff, stuff that, you know, maybe you forgot about, um, you know, uh, maybe you didn't take it too serious at the time here, yeah. but um, you know, usually it's the case, well, you put your name down years ago, you never thought it would happen and then suddenly it pops up. So the number one of these that I see is co-signed debts. Um, so we've talked a lot on this show. When is it smart to co-sign? Almost never, um, yeah. because it can and does come back to bite the individual. And this uh, goes back to, you know, you're wanting to help out. Right? Yeah. You're wanting to help somebody. They're they're doing the right thing. They're They're wanting to get back on track. They need some money to do that. And with your help, they can get the money. But there's there's no upside to it if they yeah. default. No, exactly. And, you know, most people think, okay, if I'm co-signing, maybe it's 50-50, you know, if it's a $5,000 loan, okay, I'd be on the hook for 2500 No, it's joint and several liabilities. So if it's a $5,000 loan and you co-signed it, if the bank can't collect a dollar from the principal borrower, they will collect $5,000 from the guarantor. So you are signing to be responsible for the whole thing. Um, you'd have to be careful too. If you signed early on to an open credit line, uh, you know, was at a certain amount early on, but now it's escalated, you know, does your guarantee have a cap? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Usually it doesn't. So um, you may have some liabilities out there that you don't know about if you're on the hook for as a guarantor to someone else's account. Yeah, man, that, yeah, scary. Because like I say, I go back, you're actually wanting to help somebody, give them a hand. And this seems like a very reasonable, responsible way to do it, especially if you have the ability to 
co-sign and you are of means that you can do that. Yeah, as long as you do it with eyes wide open and, you know, maybe come in, have a meeting with a trustee and say, I'm thinking of co-signing this debt. What are the implications? And, you know, just walk through it. And if knowing all the facts, you still want to co-sign, that's great. Um, But a number of folks in my office who didn't know all the facts, didn't know the implications and regretted putting their name down. You know, it's not a small number. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Good idea. MSP premiums. Yeah, so this is going the way of the dodo in BC, thank God, eventually. Um, it is too, but right? Yeah, but yeah, I've got clients you know, who hadn't paid MSP for years, and then suddenly they start to get their wages garnished, or they start to get all these incessant collection calls. So um, MSP is something that you've got to keep up on. Again, the obligation is lower this year, getting eliminated, I believe, starting in 2019 or 2020. Um, so it's not something that in the future you're going to have to worry about. But as of now, no, if you're an adult in BC, there's an obligation to pay MSP. And if you think you're under the under the radar or whatever, you're not eventually they will send you a bill and require you to pay. They'll try to collect for all those months. And I would think that even when the time comes that we no longer have to pay MSP premiums yep. and you still owe this huge amount of money, yep. you're still going to be... Oh, they're not writing to, that off. They're not writing it no. off. No. So you can't say, oh, well, it's you know it's going to disappear <laughs> anyway. That's yep. something I would think, but it's a dumb idea. Unfortunately. Yeah, they're going to come at, back. In. And student loans. Yeah, with, with student loans. So um, again, you've just got to be careful that you're you're conscious of it. Um, make sure you've got a plan to pay it down um, and realize that student loans as a government creditor, they can still take a lot of actions against you. So all of this speaks to talk to an expert. We'll run through all the types of debts and we'll, we'll ensure that you, know, you get on the right path. Go see Blair at Sands & Associates. Here's their website, sands-trustee.com. Their phone number, it's a 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Our guest in studio, Mark Fidget. He's a Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker, has over 20 years of experience. He's a member of the Verico Mortgage Network and the driver be- behind uh, advancedequity.ca. That's the website, www.advancedequity.ca. Now, Mark has been on our show before. He's also a frequent speaker on the topic of mortgage debt and personal finance. And we're so happy to have you here, Mark. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks, Blair. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, our, our pleasure. Um, so, Mark, I've got the first question here. A lot of people are really scared about the beating that their credit rating would take if they take a step to deal with their debt, like coming to see Sands and Associates, maybe filing a bankruptcy or filing a consumer proposal. It's probably the number one concern people have. And when I dig into it, it's all about, am I ever going to be able to afford a house? Am I ever going to be able to qualify for a mortgage? I know you've helped a number of my past clients, and I wonder if you can just give some ideas about what someone's going to face if they've just been through a bankruptcy, for example, and they've got a goal of qualifying for a mortgage? So great question, Blair. Um, One of the first things we need to figure out is what was the story? What happened in the bankruptcy? Right. Um, In terms of a timeframe, you're typically looking at at least two years after discharge date before any atypical bank lender and Mark, well, just on the story, so it does matter the circumstances, right? Because some, some people think it's just dollars or dollars and it doesn't matter if you gambled or if you got sick or something, but the lenders do care. Well, I'm right? going to say the lenders do care. Um, mm. I've been asked several times, of mm. what, what was the story? What was the reason behind the bankruptcy? Right. I mean, obviously it's tough to turn around and say, well, you know, I'm a gambler, but, you know, we try to have, we have to try and, you know, put a reason behind the bankruptcy. Right. Okay. 
So back to timing, you're waiting about two years. And even then, Blair, when it's that two-year frame from discharge or two-year time frame from discharge, the way they look at mortgages after bankruptcy, it's not a one-off. They're really looking on the merits of the, the applicant. Like, what's their income like? Mm-hmm. Um, what What's their credit like right now? Um, and like I said, the story behind it, what's their down payment like? And we're really looking for the applicant to demonstrate two years of solid reestablished credit. Um, the down payments coming from their own resources has to be at the least 5% of the first 500000 and 10% of the balance. Um, generally, the larger the down payment, the stronger the file is looked. Obviously, you know, it's uh, less risk for the uh, lender. Right. And I know, Mark, when I sit down with clients and I tell them, you know, bankruptcy, when you finish it, it's going to be on your credit for six years. But um, a lot of people can reestablish credit and even qualify for a mortgage in two years. I get, you know, really incredulous looks, you know, how can that be possible? But, you know, when you look at the at the situation, you know, someone finishes a bankruptcy with no debt, right? There's nobody else going to be competing right. for those dollars. They're going to take seriously the next obligation. And to your point, Mark, if they've done a great job for a two-year period and saved a down payment, you know, you're saying that they would be looked at similar to any other client at that point. Correct. I mean, I think you'll agree with me, Blair, in your experience, bad things happen to good people. Yep. Um, I really notice, as you probably do more often than I do, the difference between somebody who's gone through a bankruptcy, how they feel, how much relief, the you know, the monkey off their back. That said, after the bankruptcy, it's all about reestablishing credit. Mm-hmm. And a couple of key things to remember, confirm with the credit bureau and uh Blair, maybe you work with them on this, that all the items that were included in the bankruptcy actually reflect that way on the credit bureau. Because there are times where I've pulled a credit bureau, tried to do a mortgage for someone who's two years post-bankrupt, and it's still showing that there's a large debt that wasn't included in the bankruptcy. So we basically got to go around and do the due diligence again. So that's one of the things that I'm sure you work with. Oh yeah, and that, that's a huge frustration for trustees and for clients alike. It's something that we we can correct, but essentially all the information is sent to the bureaus automatically as soon as you're discharged. They've got all the debt information, but there's nothing that stops creditors from perhaps doing an inaccurate update, you know, by mistake. So sometimes you've got to clean up those mistakes, but it's pretty well a slam dunk. A bankruptcy deals with all the debts. It's just a matter of cleaning up the report later, but it can be an extra hassle sometimes. Correct. Now, can I ask a question? Is that something that I could do if I'm in that, if I'm one of your, cl- if I'm a client mm-hmm. or do I? I have to wait for somebody of more authority like you mm-hmm. or you to do that for me? No, that's a great question, Elaine. Absolutely, it's something you can do. I can. Um, and in okay. fact, the trustee can't do it for you because it's your personal credit report. So got a trustee it. can give you all the information, help you with the forms, but you've got to submit an investigation to the bureau to say, hey, correct this bad information that's there. It's not okay. accurate. So the onus really is on me then to, to yep. do that. And it makes sense mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah, definitely. You don't want inaccurate information. I encourage, and we've talked about this before, everybody to pull their credit once a year and just to make sure there's not some weird stories that are in there that have nothing to do with you. Yeah, and I always forget that good advice. And when I walk out this door, I always (laughs) forget that. So getting back to this, Blair, um, in terms of what you're going to need in reestablishing the credit, it's really imperative that the documents that you provide your client, the certificate of discharge, and the notice of what was included in the bankruptcy yep. that they really hang on to. Because when we fast forward and we're trying to do this mortgage, one of the important things is that we can show the certificate of discharge. And a lot of times the lender is going to ask what was included in the mortgage. Mm-hmm. So we need that discharge certificate. And uh, also great to confirm on the credit bureau that the discharge date has been listed. So it's right. actually looking, when we pulled the credit bureau and now we're fast forwarded two years, 
we can see that the date of discharge is reflecting on the credit bureau. It's great to see that too. Now, we talked about rebuilding. As soon as they're discharged, and I know you have this conversation with your clients, it's all about rebuilding their credit because obviously the history they have isn't good history. And moving forward, when we're trying to get them a mortgage, the lender's looking for good history from that point forward. So they must have a positive reporting history. Um, We have a a saying in the industry, and you probably do, it's called 222. Hmm. And really it requires two trade lines, two years of track record, and at least $2,000 in credit limit. So when we talk about trade lines, we're talking about any facility that reports on the credit bureau, whether it's a credit card, a car loan, a, a line of credit, anything like that. So I know with some bankruptcies, and Blair, maybe you can touch on this, the applicant can actually retain some credit after the bankruptcy or during the bankruptcy. Yeah, and that's a great point, Mark, because a lot of people, they're hesitant to even come into the office because they think if they've got a mortgage or they've got a car loan, if they have to file for bankruptcy, they've got to give both of those up, and it's it's completely untrue. So vast majority of people, unless they're sitting on oodles of equity in their property, they just keep making their mortgage payments, and that continues to you know help show that they're able to honor their obligations. Same with a car loan. In almost every case, you've got you know minimal to negative equity on a car loan. So if you file for bankruptcy, you've got the option of walking away, or you can just continue to make those payments. And again, to your point, that will help with rebuilding. Absolutely. And it, and it's great for people to know out there. I mean, most people need a vehicle to get to work and yeah. a lot of them fear that, well, if I declare bankruptcy, I'm going to lose my vehicle. And, and that's not necessarily the case. So it's, right. a, it's a great point. So rebuilding the credit is a key thing. And if they can retain something, that's great. Otherwise, you know, obviously we're going to work on that um, and work on debt utilization. And, that, and that's a big thing. Most people don't know that uh, the credit bureau has a scoring system mm-hmm. and the way debt utilization works is the credit bureau wants to see you not using more than 30% of your credit. And a lot of people okay. don't know that and they're not told that. But so $2,000, keep it to 600 Keep it to 600 okay. or if it's higher, spread it across two cards. Uh, it helps. It's all about rebuilding your score because when you're going back in to get a mortgage after being discharged, two years from discharge, you're still, we're still looking at your score. So what's your score? So if you haven't done any rebuilding, your score is going to still be poor. So it's all about rebuilding that score. And so Mark, a discussion I have often with my clients, you know, if their ultimate goal is to qualify for a mortgage, sometimes the quicker and better way for them to deal with it is to actually take the hit of a bankruptcy, to deal with all the unsecured debt and then focus on rebuilding. And everyone's so surprised you can do that in two years. You can rebuild your credit after a bankruptcy. So if someone's looking at, you know, 15 years to chisel out from debt and they want to preserve a perfect credit rating that whole time, it can be a better strategy to take a short-term hit and then actually rebuild your credit within a couple of years after. Well, when you look at the, the options, Blair, uh, most of the people that are looking at bankruptcy, they're carrying a huge debt level, yep. huge stress level. Yep. So to know that, listen, you can eliminate all that debt. You're coming in there fresh. Um, you're rebuilding your credit. You can start over. You're getting a second chance. I mean, th- those are great options versus you're never going to get out of that debt anyway. So, I mean, it's it's a great option. I'm just going to jump in here, you guys. We're almost completely out of time, and I want to mention one thing. If any of this information is resonating with you, uh, if you've been thinking about a mortgage, if you're in that position where you're, you've either declared bankruptcy or you're going through the process, you want more information, I can tell you two guys to talk to about it. 
uh, Blair Manton, Sands and Associates, and I'll give you their, his website in just a second, uh, or talk to Mark Fidget. He's also very accessible. AdvancedEquity.ca is the website. Uh, he's a super knowledgeable guy about mortgage debt and personal finance. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.